This week's Bible study from President and Founder of Capital Ministries, Ralph Drawlinger, for the week of December 10th, 2018, is entitled, John the Baptist on How to Change Culture. The Introduction, the Correct Way to Change Culture. Heated debate among evangelical pastors and church leaders has erupted over the past 40 years as to how the believers should best engage in societal change. While both sides of the debate represent noble motives and seek the same objective, how to best achieve it, unfortunately, remains controversial. Let me suggest that this week's passage makes a strong and simple case for the following. The believer's primary emphasis on heart change will assuredly and eventually result in cultural change. Luke chapter 3 is a powerful and insightful passage regarding the guaranteed social benefits that inure from the evangelism efforts of believers. Here are excerpts from that somewhat lengthy passage that will enable you to quickly see my points. Contextually, the he is John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, verse 3, And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 3, 8, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. I have purposefully edited the Luke 3 passage to simply read in a way that makes the social implications of John's evangelism immediately apparent. John the Baptist was an evangelist preaching, repentance, and that repentance is a necessary component to true conversion. In contrast to what is today termed easy believism, Otherwise, when you think about it, why do you need to be saved in the first place? If in your heart there is no acknowledgement of being lost, why are you seeking Christ and His forgiveness if in your heart you sense no need? True conversion, true cultural change only stems from a gospel message that is heavily laden with the necessity of personal repentance from sin. Certainly that is what John the Baptist models here. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice what follows in terms of cultural change. In Luke 3, the Word of God says that personal generosity, integrity, respect for others' property and person, as well as personal contentment, are the fruits in keeping with repentance, all stem from the conversion of the soul by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It follows that, the reason so many capitalistic cultures do not function properly is related to the lack of repentance and conversion in the populace. Capitalism should never be understood to be the sole determinant to a successful culture. In Luke 3, 
identified are three different sectors of Palestinian culture that were present when John the Baptist preached, the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. Although culturally dissimilar, all were profoundly affected by John's message in ways similar. Regardless of socioeconomic background, each repented of his sins and was genuinely transformed, cross-reference Romans 12.2. Why the same result from a culturally divergent audience, stemming from their conversions all therein and subsequently possessed an internal Holy Spirit-driven unction, Romans 8.9, characterized by and resulting in the same response. Notice from the passage the threefold mention, what shall we do? Said another way, the Holy Spirit always indwells the heart of the genuinely converted. And as indicated by this passage, He always convicts the converted to become a better citizen. Don't miss this simple, profound point as taught in and by the Word of God. It should hugely inform those who are passionate about changing culture. Each of the three is instructed by John to bear character qualities that will most certainly benefit society. Here, then, is the best way to affect societal change in the long run. To disagree with this is to disagree with the simple, clear meaning of the passage. Has not American evangelicalism, in its attempt to change the country, largely disregarded the power of evangelism? Would you agree with me that it is time for believers to make evangelism a priority in the capital. Can you really make America great again over the long run without an emphasis on heart transformation via the gospel of Christ? Is not now the time to return to the simple biblical formula as evidenced in Luke 3 for affecting societal change? What follows in order to form a more deep-seated conviction concerning what was just previously stated simple Biblical formula for changing culture are five wrong ways to go about it, as indexed chronologically throughout American history. Stay with me now and read on. This will be worth your time. Wrong way number one, post-millennialism. The first wrong way to go about changing culture is via an eschatological motivation and outlook, especially one that is not rooted in Scripture. What exactly do I mean by that? Postmillennialism was the prevailing eschatological, what the Bible supposedly teaches about the future, point of view of the American church from the Puritan era all the way through to the Civil War. Postmillennialism is the understanding of the future in this way. Christ will return at the end of the millennial period, at which time believers will have Christianized the world and prepared the way for him. As such, postmillennialism helps to explain the reason and motivation as to why Christians were involved in society during the earliest period of American church history. Postmillennialism was promoted through this period of the Great Awakening by such preachers as the great Jonathan Edwards. In this context, The church was guided and motivated by a misguided, prophetic determinism to work for societal change in order to usher in the return of Christ. In their way of thinking, 
It follows that an involvement in politics and changing culture was essential and motivated by a desire to usher in the kingdom of God, which was equated with Christ's physical return. Christ will only return at a point in time when believers have prepared the way by Christianizing all the nations of the world. In post-millennial thought, Christianizing the world was and is the believer's side of the bargain that must be achieved in order to enact Christ's second coming. To illustrate the tangential fervor of this eschatological understanding in early America, church historian Marsden summarizes what was wildly believed at that time. Quote, America has a special place in God's plans and will be the center for the great spiritual and moral reform that will lead to the golden age or millennium of Christian civilization. Moral reform, accordingly, is crucial for hastening this spiritual millennium. End quote. The Puritans, as well as present-day post-millennialists, a now very small minority of evangelicals, believe that Christ's kingdom will grow out of the spiritual and moral progress gained by and through the believer's efforts at reforming politics and culture in the present age. But reforming is not necessarily equated with soul winning, i.e., the simple aforesaid formula of Luke chapter 3 evangelism. Social progress in general in the post-millennial driven Puritan period was evidence of the advance of the kingdom of God. Arthur Cushman McGifford, a leading post-millennialist who stated, quote, The kingdom of God is not a kingdom lying in another world beyond the skies, but established here and now, end quote, illustrates further the summation of this belief. Accordingly, missionary progress was measured during the Puritan period, not only in terms of evangelistic crusades, revival, and church planting, but in terms of cultural advancement. Cultural successes pertaining to the abolishment of slavery and technological achievement were just as much measurements of the Christianization of America as anything else. The point to all this is that postmillennialism was the singular prevailing theological impetus that motivated and justified the Church to emphasize being directly involved in the politics and culture of the country. Therefore, One's attempt to ascertain the repeatable effectiveness for today of the evangelical church's involvement in the political and cultural arena, as was the case during the Puritan period, rises or falls on whether or not post-millennial eschatology is biblically demonstrable and verifiable today. In fact, post-millennialism is not exegetically popular today. It has been roundly discounted by leading conservative evangelical theologians. There is no scripture to support the idea that Christ's second coming is predicated on the church Christianizing culture beforehand. Today, the dominant eschatology in the American church is premillennialism. This predominant eschatological camp believes that Christ's second coming will occur at the start of the millennial period in order to save the world from its own tragedy. In fact, most all of the leading national evangelical expository preachers whom you hear on Christian radio today are premillennialists. 
Accordingly, postmillennialism is in no position to be the tour de force that it once was, so as to be a leading impetus for cultural change today. Postmillennialism, if it were true to Scripture, would be a great pragmatic motivation to engage believers in culture, but it is woefully lacking in terms of biblical underpinnings. Said another way, if prophetic determinism, postmillennial thought to usher in God's kingdom by transforming culture, is the total motivation and justification for manifesting social actions, then social involvement by the church pivots on its ability to biblically substantiate postmillennial belief. A theological discussion pertaining to the strengths and weaknesses of postmillennialism warrants its own Bible study at another time. So, if the premise of postmillennialism is built on faulty eschatological exposition, the American church had largely rejected postmillennial eschatology by the conclusion of World War II, then it stands to reason that what motivated Puritan cultural involvement back then is non-sustainable and incapable of doing the same for today. It therefore stands to reason that nurturing and promoting postmillennialism is a wrong way to attempt changing culture today. Remember, these five wrong ways to proffer cultural change are listed in the order they appear in American church history. So to summarize this first epic of American church history as it pertains to the preeminence of saving faith to societal change, the sole progenitor of cultural change in Luke chapter 3, the impetus, formula, and motivation that served to engage the early American church in a mission to change society was post-millennial eschatology. Such was more so than straight-up evangelism. Summarily, the Puritan way to change culture was based on an exegetically faulty eschatology. Wrong way number two, theological liberalism. The theologically distinctive period in American church history that immediately followed Puritanism was the rise of modernism, or better, theological liberalism, also known as the social gospel. This changing of the American theological landscape was a dominant, but not entire, metamorphosis that occurred over a period of time from approximately 1865 to 1915. The primacy of postmillennial-driven Puritanism segued into a primacy of liberal Protestantism. Ushered in was what is commonly referred to as the social gospel form of Christianity. During this period in American church history, there can be no doubt as to the accelerating involvement of the American church into the political and social arena, as depicted by the very name, the social gospel. However, the pertinent question is this, was the social gospel a true-to-the-Bible-based attempt to change culture? J. Gresham Machen said resoundingly, no, it, the social gospel, is not biblical Christianity whatsoever. In his book, Christianity and Theological Liberalism, published in 1923, he became the chief opponent spokesman against what had been by then become a thoroughly entrenched liberal Protestantism. Machen, from whose primer I learned the Greek language, 
had been a New Testament professor at Princeton Theological Seminary prior to the liberal Presbyterians wresting control of the institution. Machen and his theologically conservative cohorts then left the school to found Westminster Seminary. Importantly and accurately, he insisted that liberal Protestantism was, quote, another religion, since it proposed an entirely new view of Jesus and a scheme of salvation other than Christianity had ever taught before, end quote. Accordingly, modernist Christianity, if Machen was correct, possessed no scriptural basis for its desired political and social outcomes because it was not a legitimate depiction of Christianity to begin with. Its influence and attempt to change culture was based on a faulty, hermeneutic, and exegetical premise. Liberal Protestantism had rejected and dumped Christianity's irreducible minimums and created its own. The core heresy of liberal Protestantism continues to be this. Jesus is not our Savior. He is not salvific, per se. He is merely a humble, humanitarian role model worthy of personal exemplification, as if that is all that Jesus is about. Herod is a satanic stripping away, a denuding of the power of the cross of Christ. Herod is a totally other religion who deceptively and to the confusion of many wears the same name of its authentic father. Modernism represented a not-so-subtle convergence of four concussionary confluences on Puritan Christianity. Briefly, it was composed of naturalism, or Darwinianism, which raised doubt as to the supernatural and scientific accuracy of Scripture. Secondly, modernism contained within it the presupposition of human rationalism. That is to say that man's reasoning was deemed superior a higher authority than God's revelation in Scripture. Therefore, any Scripture that could not be understood through man's finite and, I should add, fallen reasoning abilities was viewed with suspicion. Thirdly, liberal historical criticism, historical criticism is the science of codifying the ancient manuscript evidence in the manufacture of the Bible, was imported from the Tubingen School in Germany. This criticism had many forms, with the intellectual intent of casting doubt, among other things, on the accuracy of the Synoptic Gospels. It asked the question, could the reader of the Bible trust what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote? Or was the supposedly real, historically accurate Jesus different from the Christian Jesus that the Gospel writers had portrayed and embellished? In this sense, both naturalism and historical criticism enshrine the Scriptures with theoretical, plausible doubt. Add to that the fourth confluence of the encroaching social gospel, as invented by Kant, Schleimacher, and Beecher, and summarily, Puritan Christianity had been gutted, degenerated into nothing more than a moral code for people to live by. Christianity then was reduced to offering human advice rather than teaching about God's commanding precepts. Scriptural preeminence and authority had been gutted. Liberal Protestantism was and remains 
a far cry from historic biblical Christianity. It follows per the premise of this study. With such faulty presuppositions, how could theological liberalism possibly change culture for the better? As an aside, the proceeding serves to explain why so many who say that they are Christians in the capital, but who are embedded in theological liberalism, reason differently on policy issues. As Machen quipped, they may wear the name Christian on their shirt sleeve, but they are part of another religion. Conservative Christian leadership of that time either possessed few apologists of learning or they made little of the threat until it was too late. They were reluctant to justifiably be angry, Ephesians 4.26, in the sense of righteous indignation, in an aggressive rejection of encroaching false doctrine. This attitude is descriptive of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. He was opposed to controversy itself, whereas the New Testament writer Jude preempted his soteriological emphasis in order to earnestly defend the faith from apostasy. Cross-reference Jude 3. Moody, who possessed the platform and the influence to do so in the American church as a leading nationally recognized evangelist, seemingly would have no part in such activities. He was known as a theological pragmatist and often tested doctrines relative to their suitability for evangelism. He always sought peace and avoided controversy, seeking a religion of the heart versus a religion of the mind. He often dialogued with theological liberals, giving them grace with the hope that they would eventually come around and return to traditional biblical views. But such was not the case, and in part as a result, modernism became well-rooted, the primary theology and cultural force during this period in American church history. When all was said and done, the social gospel had eclipsed the Puritan pulpit as the primary religious tour de force in American culture. The church was now for certain engaged in societal change, but was far from being doctrinally congruent with the perspicuous teachings of the New Testament. It therefore follows that the modernists' justification for social action by the use of Scripture is illegitimate because they truncate the basic doctrines of biblical Christianity in order to achieve their social gospel ends. The historic doctrines of the faith were reworked and modified into a supposed foundation for social aims. Make no mistake, Scripture does not support this revision. Therefore, Scripture does not validate the political, social direction of modernism because the social gospel is not consistent with biblical Christianity to begin with. It is antithetical to it. Modernism was founded upon a self-styled, eisegetical epistemology which seeks to morph Scripture in order to use it to support preconceived liberal social views versus the objective use of Scripture, which is to extract and apply from it its timeless, repetitive, perspicuous precepts. Accordingly, this period of church history does not have a legitimate, extracted-from-Scripture theological treatise to biblically justify its social expression. Therefore, 
Christian involvement in the political arena through this epic of American church history lacks a correct biblical and theological underpinning. Luke chapter 3 evangelism was far from its agenda because theological liberalism was about social moralism, not personal evangelism, which remains true today. What about the coming fundamentalist period? Would it be characterized by the primacy of saving faith to create societal change? Wrong way number three, fundamentalist reactionism. One of the recurring themes in Joel Carpenter's super informative book, Revive Us Again, is the idea that the fundamentalist movement's social involvement, that involvement which is apart from evangelism, was motivated out of reactionary pride, the strong visceral unction to take back the center stage from the modernists who had stolen it away from the Puritans. States Carpenter, quote, those who founded the fundamentalist movement witnessed this shift in cultural leadership and began to notice that their own status and influence was waning, end quote. Earlier in his book, Carpenter states, quote, they saw their status as community leaders and the influence of their evangelical values decreased sharply, while a new elite of university-trained secular professors and theological liberal clergy gained power and prestige. Fundamentalists had been deeply shamed in the battles of the 1920s, but they could not give up on the vision of a Christian America, end quote. The human desire to get back all that had been lost to the theological liberals. Seminaries, colleges, denominations, churches, mission agencies, publishing companies, and their like was a compelling motive that seemed to eclipse the need for a clearly reasoned theology relative to how to go about doing that. The same compelling desire seemed to eclipse as well the need to stop and question the validity of the earlier Puritan objective to Christianize America, as was motivated by post-millennial eschatology in the first place. Furthermore, there existed an underlying assumption by the fundamentalists that what had been lost was that which God intended for believers to get back and always possess. Again, how biblically speaking one should go about achieving repossession of these institutions is missing from the literature of the time. Accordingly, fundamentalists sought many means to take back America from the theological liberals, but there exists no biblically reasoned document by any leader during the period as to how one should achieve that. Fundamentalists were motivated and driven, if not captivated, by an overwhelming reactionary pragmatism to recover their huge losses. One of the chief intellectual spokespersons for fundamentalism, although he did not identify himself as a fundamentalist, was, as previously mentioned, J. Gresham Machen. Importantly, and worth repeating, Machen had argued against theological liberals' political and social involvement that was intended to change culture. Machen was sensitive to the church becoming focused on means other than evangelism, and discipleship to instead lapse into a moralizing campaign void of a biblical justification. Why try to do what the theological liberals had done? 
become involved in politics to manifest their religious beliefs, he reasoned. Machen alludes to this when he says, quote, The Christian missionary, his chief business, he believes is the saving of souls, and souls are saved not by teaching the mere ethical principles of Jesus, but by his redemptive work, human goodness. The emphasis of theological liberalism will avail nothing for lost souls. Ye must be born again, end quote. Theological liberals had united with the institution of government in order to achieve their understanding of Jesus' gospel, that it was not a personal conversion, a reformed and Puritan understanding of what Scripture teaches, but rather a social gospel. Thus, the fundamentalist reactions to the aberrant understanding of the gospel as being social was this. They withdrew from all forms of governmental involvement, lest a fundamentalist be perceived to be a modernist. The fundamentalist who understood and believed in the power of change via personal conversion to Christ, those who possessed the unadulterated message of salvation in their knee-jerk reaction to modernism, abandoned the mission field of the state. This is a tragic, wrong reaction relative to the future course of the nation. Accordingly, even though fundamentalists possess a proper understanding of the gospel in the sense of Luke chapter 3, that it was salvific and could internally change a person into being a good citizen, they elected to forsake the mission field of civil government in reaction to that being the emphasis of the modernists. They threw the baby out, the necessity of taking the real gospel to the institution of government, because they perceived the bathwater, the theological liberals had made this their primary point of emphasis and involvement to achieve their understanding of Scripture, to be dirty. Again, how tragic. In our search for a historic application of the simple truth of Luke chapter 3, that saving faith is the best progenitor of societal advance and cultural change, let us recap these first three dominant periods of American church history. The Puritans engaged culture motivated by postmillennialism more so than personal evangelism. The modernists engaged culture motivated by a social understanding of Jesus' mission, not personal evangelism. And the fundamentalists did not engage culture, even though they believed wholeheartedly in personal evangelism. Parenthetically, in a larger sense, the mission of Capital Ministries is to reverse this third wrong way of influencing culture by bringing a premillennial eschatology, coupled with a salvific Jesus, back into the political arena. Why? Because Luke 3 reveals that it is the best way to change culture for the better. Wrong way number four, neo-evangelicalism. During the late 1940s, Harold Okenga and Carl Henry, among others, birthed neo-evangelicalism with the intent of sanding off the seemingly rough edges of an increasingly sectarian, militant fundamentalism. By this time, fundamentalism had been bloodied in its war with liberal Protestantism, and its resulting public image was one of a combatant, which, in simple terms, had marginalized its influence in the eyes of broad society. 
Accordingly, neo-evangelical is a new titling to a movement and desire to, among other things, increase evangelical influence in society. Motivated by the belief that fundamentalism had isolated itself from being able to play a major role in the influence of American culture, the purveyors of neo-evangelicalism were attempting a Christian metamorphosis, a makeover, a reintroduction of biblical Christianity. This new chapter idea can be illustrated in several ways. First, is the landmark article that appeared in Christian Life magazine in March of 1956, titled, Is Evangelical Theology Changing? Contributors to the article were numerous noted Christian leaders. Among the eight listed major changes from fundamentalism to neo-evangelicalism was the need to have a more definite recognition of social responsibility. The article states in this regard, Nevertheless, unlike fundamentalism, evangelicalism realizes the church has a prophetic mission to society. There are times when the church must thunder, thus saith the Lord. The article goes on to say in greater specificity, we must make evangelicalism more relevant to the political and sociological realities of our time. But the article failed to build a biblical basis for the aforementioned conclusive statement, becoming more socially involved. This is especially important in light of the neo-evangelical leaders under emphasis regarding the preeminence of evangelism as the primary means of the institution of the church impacting culture. Carl Henry was the leading voice in the neo-evangelical movement. He is known for his leading work in this regard titled, the Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. This book represents the Magna Carta of the emerging prominence of the neo-evangelical position, as the pendulum now swung away from historic militant fundamentalism in American church history. From a sense of logic and reasoning, Henry's postulations seem quite persuasive. However, he fails to provide any sort of biblical basis for his thesis regarding the necessity of a social emphasis by the institution of the church, apart from the obvious relationship that we have seen in Luke chapter 3, that social and cultural change primarily emanates from evangelistic endeavor. As a matter of fact, the simple biblical formula of Luke chapter 3 is nowhere to be found in Henry's book. This is unfortunate because once again in the major epics of American church history, the institution of the church is about to miss the obvious way in which it should primarily and is best suited to, in terms of overall effectiveness, relate to and best affect the state. When Henry makes the charge that, Modern fundamentalism does not explicitly sketch the social implications of its message for the non-Christian world, has he not failed to consider Luke 3? Void of a Luke 3 informative understanding of the primary purpose of the institution of the church as it relates to the state, neo-evangelicalism is about to wander once again down the same path of theological liberalism. The unique trump card of the institution of the church is evangelism, not moralism. 
The church best influences the state in ways that only it can, evangelizing the lost. Many, many more voices of founding neo-evangelical influence, which advocated social, political change via the institution of the church, could be cited, but even though one of the major tenets of neo-evangelicalism is social involvement and reform, similar to the emphasis of theological liberalism, but void of its doctrinal heresy. The leaders once again nonetheless provide no scriptural basis for social involvement and overlook the extremely simple and profound insight and model of Luke chapter 3. Conclusively, neo-evangelicalism is not the best way to change culture. It only detracts from the most excellent God-given means of doing that, evangelize the lost, as did John the Baptist. Wrong way number five, the religious right. The attempts by evangelicals to change the cultural direction of America through political involvement perhaps bloomed more fully in the mid-1970s than ever before. From the immediate previous era of neo-evangelicalism in American church history comes the next period, the era of the religious right. Fundamentalist pastor Jerry Falwell founds the moral majority. Thereafter, televangelist Pat Robertson takes the mantle of leadership via the auspices of his Christian organization, the Christian Coalition, founded in the mid-1980s. And then... Approximately 10 years later, focus on the families. Dr. James Dobson takes that baton. It is the latter's organization that published the book, Why You Can't Stay Silent, A Biblical Mandate to Shape Our Culture. Dr. Dobson is no longer with Focus on the Family, nor did he write this book. I should first couch what I'm about to say with this. While alive, Dr. Jerry Falwell was a good friend of mine as are Dr. Robertson and Dr. Dobson to this day. I love these men. Focus on the Family's book is the first major attempt by evangelicals to provide a biblical basis for cultural involvement by the institution of the church. But in Why You Can't Stay Silent, there is no mention of Luke chapter 3, the fact that the primacy of evangelism leads to societal change like nothing else. Our summary. Luke chapter 3 reveals how the individual believer and the institution of the church best go about efforts to change culture. The best way the church should relate to the state is via evangelism. The state needs it, the institution of the church has it, and the culture changes for the better because of it. The Puritans, although motivated primarily by postmillennialism, out of necessity, did a lot of evangelism. And because they did, America was founded with a dynamism and power unmatched in world history. America came out of nowhere to become the leading nation of the world. The primary basis of this was the evangelism of the soul. Today we still ride the wave of the early American church's emphasis on evangelism which greatly affected and influenced our founding fathers. But the tsunami of the Puritan influence has lessened greatly over the years due to all the epics of American church history that followed, wherein we have been 
unable to dial it correctly ever since. Theological liberals lost their doctrine as they sought to influence America with a manufactured gospel of their own making. Fundamentalists had the gospel right but retreated from culture. Neo-evangelicals, in their attempt to right the wrong of fundamental sectarianism, Neo-evangelicals, in their attempt to right the wrong of fundamental sectarianism, still failed because their solution was void of the primacy and simplicity of evangelism. And the religious right movement, although full of sincere passion, also underemphasized the simplicity and focus of evangelism as it spent the energy of the church trying to change laws rather than working to change the hearts of lawmakers. Will the next epic of American church history, one that I think is about to begin, be characterized by the priority, simplicity, and profundity of evangelism, or will we somehow miss out on this singular emphasis once again? As we contemplate this matter, we must consider the cultural results of the great evangelist John the Baptist. This concludes our Bible study for this week. May God bless you deeply. Thank you for all you do for our country and on the Hill. This is Frank Sontag.